I first heard about the machine elves at a Midwestern Burning Man in 2018. It was the apogee of the Big Burn, and the camp had just finished their effigy, the ceremonial conflagration of the wooden centerpiece. This ritualistic activity is the highlight of all Burning Man events around the country. After the structure collapsed and the camp dissolved into celebrations, there were libations and dancing and people passing around some more fringe substances. Sometime late into the evening, I was sitting around a campfire with some burners and one very scruffy looking guy named Radix. He was wearing a hooded sweatshirt and he asked if we wanted to try DMT, dimethyltryptamine, a hallucinogen. He said it would take you to another dimension where you would encounter creatures. What sort of creatures? I asked. The machine elves. They're like these artificial life forms. They want to understand you and they help you to understand reality, Radix said. I thought about it. And I realized I didn't want to meet the machine elves, at least not with Radix. I wasn't sure of this guy. What would the machine elves think if I showed up with this funky dude in tow? So I declined. It was the first time in my life I had ever even heard of DMT, but it wouldn't be the last. Since that night, I have been hearing more and more about DMT, psychedelics, and access to other dimensions. Later that summer at a straight-laced conference in Washington, DC, a fellow attendee made a breathless confession he had spent the first half of his summer recovering after a ritualistic experience with ayahuasca, a potent brew that contains DMT. And then I heard Joe Rogan discussing his encounters with the machine elves, which he described as psychic gestures on his podcast. People are getting weird about ayahuasca and DMT. There is a growing idea going around that DMT is a gateway to a real place where you encounter entities called the machine elves. But people have lots of weird experiences on drugs. Why do they feel the need to claim that this stuff is really happening? Why would you think that DMT actually takes you to another realm? Chris and I attempt to make sense of the machine elves, and in doing so, we started with the usual suspects, the world of Reddit. But our explorations took us back to 1971, where we traced the 21st century's growing obsession with DMT and machine elves to the adventures of a pair of hippie brothers known as Terrence and Dennis McKenna. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. So as I already said, we're talking about dimethyltryptamine or DMT today, and uh, the idea is to figure out uh, why are people 
so obsessed with this idea that you can communicate with beings called machine elves. What are the machine elves? And um, what do they have to teach us if they do exist? Chris, I think you're going to get us started with uh, some research you did into first-person experiences, so first-hand accounts of use of DMT. Yeah, absolutely, Dane. So I am going to talk just a little bit about Terrence McKenna at the beginning here because he's really the guy that kicks this whole thing off. But machine elves, they're known by some different names. We have clockwork elves, DMT elves, fractal elves, and tykes, right? And so tykes, uh, machine elves are often viewed or seen as childlike figures with kaleidoscopic geometric faces that are constantly changing. Now, the interesting thing about the this phenomenon is the co-occurrence and regularity with which people see the machine elves when they take DMT. And people are having these experiences independently of one another without having been exposed to the idea of the machine elf. And so if we think about maybe a subconscious bias that might exist, well, we have some examples here that show that that's actually not the case. And so I'm gonna take you through some Terrence McKenna and some other people, but also I have some really juicy stories from Reddit that I think are, are gonna be great here tonight. So Terrence Kent McKenna was an America ethnobotanist and uh, he was an author, a lecturer, and he did advocate, and this is important, for the responsible use of psychedelic substances, right? Particularly those natural substances that are derived from plants. And I say this is important because responsible use it, is key here. Because as we probably both know, and hopefully our listeners know, that repeated and regular use of most psychotropic drug, drugs does definitive damage to the brain. And so Terrence was definitely not all about that. So uh, he refers to this experience with these machine elves. He calls them self-transforming machine elves. He describes them as being jeweled, self-dribbling basketballs. And he says that anyone who used DMT long enough would eventually experience an, an encounter with these clockwork elves. He says, quote, I encounter self-transforming elf machines, which are creatures, entities perhaps, although they're not made out of matter. He also later explains they're made out of, as nearly as I can figure it out, syntax driving light. They use language which you see. So he's saying you see the language with your eyes. You, you aren't just experiencing it with your ears. It is made out of sound. It is sound, but you see it. And the entire point of the encounter from their perspective, that is from the perspective of the machine elves, is to teach you to do just this. That sounds very cool. Um, so like uh, you see words like, like signs, like written letters. So Let's this is a, a, a really good question that you have. So as I've been going through these encounters, whether that be McKenna's Reddit encounters or others that we're going to look at, they're very ambiguous. And as far as I can tell, the uh, the synesthetic experience, when we talk about synesthesia for abusers, that means where senses cross over into each other. You know, can you can taste sounds or see sounds or 
or here are colors, that kind of thing. It really defies linguistic description. So as we get into these things tonight, there's these really bizarre and weird descriptions. Sometimes they're limited and hard to comprehend. And I think really that's because what these people are experiencing, these psychonauts, is so beyond our normal reality that it defies the conventions of standard language that has been designed for us to ex describe and explain the re reality in which we live. Right. So McKinnon goes on, he talks about this experience and this, this is all direct quote from him. OK, so he says, quote, I sank to the floor. I experienced this hallucination of tumbling forward into these fractal geometric spaces made of light. And when I found myself in the equ equivalent of the Pope's private chapel, and there were insect elf machines proffering strange little tablets with strange writing on them, and I was aghast, completely appalled, because, in a matter of seconds, my entire expectation of the nature of the world was just being shredded in front of me. I've never actually gotten over it. These self-transforming machine elf creatures were speaking in a colored language, which condensed into rotating machines that were like Fabergé eggs, but crafted out of luminescent, superconducting ceramics and liquid crystal gels. All this stuff was just so weird and so alien and so unenglishable that it was a complete shock. I mean, the literal turning inside out of my intellectual universe emphasis on the exclamation mark there this went on for two or three minutes this situation of discontinued discontinuous orthogonal dimensions to reality just engulfing me as i came out of it and the room reassembled itself i said i can't believe it it's impossible to call that a drug is ridiculous that just means that you just don't have a word for it and you putter around and you come upon the sloppy concept that something goes into your body and there's a change. It's not like that. It's like being struck by noetic lightning. Well, yeah, some pretty mind blowing stuff. And we get into the various explanations of this today, you know, Perhaps DMT is allowing people to access an alter and deeper spa uh, state of conscious, or perhaps these people are just having really super intense hallucinations, but we cannot deny the, kind of the, it, the poetry of this language, the depth of this experience if we take it on its surface. So regardless, people are having a real experience when they take the substance. It's just what is the reality of that experience, and that's hopefully the question that we're going to bat around a day and give different possible answers to. Okay, so now I have some more recent experiences from Reddit, perhaps not quite as poetic, but just as bizarre nonetheless. So this post comes from I am Bill on Reddit. He says, quote, I used to fancy myself quite the psychonaut. My first time on DMT, I was greeted by a gray alien who probed what would be my third eye and allowed me to explode into swirling double helix made of fractals in four dimensions. 
I also had a trip on a four sub tryptamines once that led me to see a lot of interesting things involving grays. A long story, but one interesting thing is that I saw a Buddha as a gray. A simple Google search afterward allowed me to find multiple images related to what I had seen. I'm fascinated by the idea of Buddha as a gray. Um, I've heard that that's one of the things that psychedelics do is that they're they're intersectional in nature. They bring two very different ideas together in a way you never would have thought. Yeah, I would agree with you. And, and another really interesting thing, we're talking about these clockwork elves today, these machine elves. But we do get this alien trope that reemerges throughout a lot of these experiences as well. Sometimes the machine elves, they're like a fractal alien so people see an alien but they also have this fractal quality maybe to their face or their body or both right so here's another um reddit post from the aptly named duder 9000 i met them when i smoked i was lying down and all of a sudden they were there surrounding a different bed i was lying on they were super excited and were expecting me. Then before they could tell me anything, I shot up into some further dimension and experienced an ego death, which was the most frightening thing I've ever. Let me tell you, there is a very specific feeling associated with dying and your body knows it. Anyway, when I saw the elves, I had never seen artistic depictions of them before. But when I did later see machine elf art, it was exactly what I had seen. A friend of a friend abused DMT for a while. While well, he treated it as a recreational fun drug instead of a psychonautical learning experience that deserves respect. And he kept ending up in the room with the elves. They finally told him to knock it off and then not come back for a while. So... One thing interesting about both of these that we've looked at so far is that, again, if they're to be believed, because these are Reddit posters and it's anonymous, is that they're having these experiences and they're going to the internet and then finding out that other people have had these experiences, right? So, again, if we're, this is to be believed, their minds have not been contaminated by some kind of subconscious bias that we would expect to come out when someone would use a hallucinogenic drug like this, right? Oh, so you're saying that they had the the experience first and then they wrote about it or they've written or they've written about it after they had the experience or their experience has been warped by reading about it even though they had the experience before they read about it? No, I'm saying they had the experience and then they read about it and later saw the images, right? So, if we are to believe these two posters, and also, if we are, you know, if we think about uh, Terrence McKenna, he, he certainly originates this, right? But these two other posters are saying, hey, look, I had this experience, and then I found out later that other people had wow. the same experience. Okay, right? very good. Yeah. And this next one I have, this was an article, uh, part, part of an article, an excerpt of an article published from Anna Wilcox. And it recently published on September 4th for the Double Blind magazine. And so she talks, and I'm not going to read through the whole thing here, but she talks of uh, 
a DMT experiencer. She uses the pseudonym Ali. And she says he breaks through to this experience. And he uh, has this initial onslaught, that's a quote, of kaleidoscopic shapes, which gives way to a more familiar scene. And I'm going to stop here for a moment because this is also something that frequently happens during DMT experiences is that people initially have these kaleidoscopic geometric hallucinations. It's called wallpapering, right? And so they might be looking at a wall, maybe wallpaper, and they kind of see these shapes start to emerge. And then uh, they kind of go into this other world in which they encounter those beings that also demonstrate this kind of fractal geometric physical behavior in terms of their physicality their what they look like right so yeah. uh he has this experience he's now in his bedroom but it's not his bedroom it's not quite right and he has company and he's surrounded by these silvery beings there's like five of them they have slender bodies there's cloaked in what he describes as alien skin or gray spandex right and the most unusual thing about them are their faces. And it matches what he's heard from his friends, right? Hmm. They had this kind of fractal thing going on with their faces. He knows them as friends. They're distinctly different, um, but they're kind of leaking light. And Ali realizes that he is now journeyed into the world beyond. So a common theme that I'm hearing is people seem to experience going into another dimension. In this case, you said going into the beyond. Earlier, it was literally another dimension. And then I think to myself, like, I don't even know what that would feel like. I, I don't know, right? Because I've never been to another dimension. So how could I hallucinate it? <laughs> so it's, it's really interesting to think about that that's the way people feel they need to report their experience, right? Moving into other places that are, I think somebody even said earlier, orthogonal to our spaces. Like, what does it feel like to move into an orthogonal space? I don't even know how to recognize such an experience. So that's really interesting to me. It's very strange. Well, it's also important to note that DMT is a Schedule A drug, so it is a legal Dane. However, if you would like to have such an experience, it's pretty obvious how you would do that, right? But I would not encourage you or our listeners to take a Schedule A drug within the confines of the United States. Now, if you were to travel somewhere like Costa Rica, where it is legal, you could certainly do that. Uh, and in fact, I, I believe, and you can correct me here if I'm wrong, that they, you can actually pay to have kind of guided meditative tours where you take ayahuasca and have these types of experiences. Is that correct, Dave? Yeah, like I told you, I was at this conference. It was the same summer I first heard about DMT. And I met a guy who had gone down. He said he went down to uh, Costa Rica with his dad, and they both did ayahuasca together and then had a far out experience. You said he was recovering from this. Was it? Did it really just unsettle his worldview that badly, or what happened to him? Yeah, he seemed like well, he was taking the week off because he had been through that the week off, the summer off. He had had something else going on in his life, uh, some like family trauma had been going on. That was why him and his dad went out actually. So I think it was a question of was it the ayahuasca per se or was it the trauma? 
you know, that he was recovering from. Hmm. Although I will say one thing that was a little bit odd, the conversation got kicked off with him asking me, what is the one weird thing you believe that other people uh, don't generally like want to hear about or talk about? And I was like, um, I don't remember what I said, but I asked, then later I said, well, what was the, what's your thing? And he started talking about Pizzagate. <laughs> and I was like, maybe we shouldn't be talking about this here because we were at like a work conference. It was a pretty serious situation. And I was a little taken aback at uh, his willingness to start diving into some really out there topics. But otherwise, he seemed like a very competent, sane individual, just at a lower lower threshold than other people for getting into like the kind of conversations you would ordinarily have at like midnight with your close friends when everybody's drunk, that kind of thing. Okay, interesting. I mean, I don't think that the Pizzagate belief really helps this case. But aside from that, as you said, you met him at a, an academic conference. He was a professional. Yeah. Uh, maybe he was just a little bit more open. So, and, and certainly, uh, I don't know the nature of his experience, but when people take DMT, it does tend to unsettle their worldview, right? So, uh, <clears throat> we're going to talk a little bit more. So, this is some of the cases that we have uh, regarding individual experiences. But it's also important to note that a lot of these experiences outside of Western culture are really associated with traditional shamanism. And this could be Native Americans that are indigenous to Australia, Africa, South America. We have uh, maybe not DMT, but other hallucinogens that are used in indigenous cultures throughout the United States as well. Now, the psychiatrist Rick Straussman wanted to look at this phenomenon in the West and through Western culture. And he's actually the first person to conduct research with humans using DMT. And he does this at the University of New Mexico. And this happens in the 1990s. He doses uh, 400 times. He's got 60 volunteers. There's 400 doses over a five-year period in the 1990s. And he writes this book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, where he, he documents what happens to these individuals. And he says, quote, I was neither intellectually nor emotionally prepared for the frequency with which contact with beings occurred in our studies, nor the often bizarre nature of these experiences. And it's interesting. So he's got thousands of pages of notes but half of those notes, 50% of those, are about interactions with DMT beings, right? Uh, according to Straussman, the subjects have this interaction with these aliens or beings or guides or helpers, and machine elves are frequently portrayed as being benevolent largely but they also have this kind of trickster quality now i think it's interesting when we think about the trickster too and we think about the tie-in with the shamanistic culture is that the trickster oftentimes in indigenous indigenous pantheons is central right so we can think about coyote we can think about the spider in african cultures we can think about all of these mythologies in which there's this benevolent 
uh, godlike being, right, that ends up helping humanity or the world, but is also trickster-like in na nature. Um, Loki. Loki, yeah, absolutely, good example. A and, of course, we know that the Norse, while they weren't using DMT, were using hallucinogenic mushrooms, psilocybin, and their rituals as well, right? So maybe, perhaps they were experiencing the same states as these other people were through a different hallucinogenic substance. Oh, that's right. You know, that's where our word berserk comes from, that they were berserkers. They were Norse warriors because they would, uh, they would get hyped up on some sort of hallucinogen right before um, combat. And they would go into an altered state and they would have no fear. So they would fight with uh, such intensity that they became feared and they were the berserkers. Well, that is absolutely, that's, I think, really fascinating, right? And so that, and that's a good point too, because if we think about this, so one way to think about this is like whether or not it's actually happening. But then also we have the, the function of the truth, right? So people having these hallucinogenic experiences, even if they're not encountering machine elves or other gods or beings, that state could have some function on them. In the case of berserkers, they're trying to survive in combat and win and prevail, right? Uh, that would seem to be a positive function of the experience of taking the hallucinogenic substance, right? Oh, I should say these were Vikings, not Norsemen. That's a mistake on my part. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the clarification as well. Excellent. All right, so uh, the machine elves are oftentimes discussed as having childlike, maybe singing, uh, willing objects into existence. And then they also try to urge the DMT users to not only pay attention to what they're doing, but to try to do that themselves. So this uh, following passage that I'm gonna read is taken from Strassman's 2001 book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. So he says, quote, there are surprising and remarkable consistencies among volunteers' reports of contact with non-material beings. Sound and vibration build until the scene almost explosively shifts to an alien realm. Volunteers find themselves on a bed or in a landing bay, research environment, or high technology room. The highly intelligent beings of this other world are interested in the subject, seemingly ready for his or her arrival and wasting no time in getting to work. There might be one particular being clearly in charge directing the others. Volunteers frequently comment about the emotional quality of the relationships, loving, caring, or professionally detached. Their business appeared to be testing, examining, probing, and even modifying the volunteer's mind and body. Sometimes testing came first, and after results were satisfactory, further interactions took place. They also communicated with the volunteers attempting to convey information by gestures, telepathy, or visual imagery. The purpose of contact was uncertain, but several subjects felt a benevolent attempt on the Bing's part to improve us individually or as a race. 
I was baffled and nonplussed by the sheer volume of bizarre nature of these reports. My crude and minimal responses to volunteers' tales in this chapter clearly reflect my quandary. At first, I tried to avoid the pitfalls attendant to developing any explanatory model, either for my benefit or for that of the subjects. However, we all needed to make sense of these types of sessions. As a clinical research psychiatrist, I entertained the idea that the regularity and consistency of these reports and the strength of the sense of reality behind them supported a biological explanation. We were activating certain hardwired sites in the brain that elicit a display of visions and feelings in the mind. How else could so many people report experiences, insect-like, reptilian creatures? Yeah, that's very intense. And it seems like he's suggesting that we might have a part of the brain wired to detect insects, right? And that's the part that's getting triggered by DMT. So if you want to give an evolutionary explanation of it, my, my thought would be like we have, well, a lot of us have an aversion to insects, right? It seems to be pretty well ingrained into us, like a fear of spiders or whatever. And that's probably wired because our ancestors had a lot of negative run-ins with bugs. And so maybe that's what D one of the, like DMT seems to do a lot of things. And maybe one of the things it does is hyperactivate your insect detecting software that's wired into your brain somewhere. And so, you know, you got a lot of hallucinations going on. And then one of the common themes is insects because it's just activating that part. You know, I think you make a really good point there, Dane. And when we get to James Kent's article, The Case Against DMT Elves, I think he's going to agree with you. And he's going to say, look, this is a psychoactive substance and it's working on our minds and our minds as they are evolved currently. And I, I think that, Dane, that's a good skeptical response to this as we see the idea of insects coming up again and again. But, you know, it's not always insects. It's, it's sometimes just like children with these weird fractal geometric shapes. And it's also important to note that these experiences are largely positive, although not always, right? Yeah. So um, another thing that I was really curious about with the Straussman study. So it seemed like in, in his book, The Spirit Molecule, which was based on his work as a clinical psychologist, um, lots of people described situations that sounded like being in a hospital. Like they talked about being poked and probed and studied by superior beings and often like you're taken to a landing bay. And I thought like, gee, it's like you're in an alien hospital. And so I wondered how much the medical and clinical setting of the research experiment might have influenced that population. It's the kind of thing you could evaluate just by by just comparing like you could you could give look at people who take DMT in a non-clinical setting and see do they tend to also report these same kinds of themes or do they have slightly different themes because like with McKenna and his people they talk about the machine elves right they're like geometric and they're Fabergé eggs and they're friendly and they're mischievous that's actually a little different from what Straussman's reporting, I think. Mm -hmm. I think it's a good point. And so uh, that brings me to my next uh, expert psychologist, Jennifer A. Like. She works at Stockton University. And she looked through 
reports that people were self-publishing on the uh, drug website, the Psychonaut subculture website, Arrowhead. And in those 149 reports, she finds uh, a lot of different entity experiences related to DNT. And then what she does is she breaks that down and she categorizes that along with the percentage. Okay, so the highest percentage of experiences fall into the category of showing, teaching, or guiding. That's 25%. And so about a quarter of these experiences, again, self-reporting, again, online. So I don't know how much that we can trust this information, right? It may not be well-sourced, but it seems to be more beneficial. There's a no interaction, so 10%. Uh, hostile is also 10%, which is going to lead me to the next author that I talk about. Warmth. 9%, welcoming 9%, reassuring or encouraging 8%, neutrality or observation 7%, 4% of the time is playful. And I think this is interesting because we're getting all these reports about the trickster and the playfulness, but what she's seeing is this only occurs a meager 4% of the time, right? Yeah. Um, power or control 3%, bizarrely sexual 3% of the time, Questioning and unclear interactions are also 3%, and reminding and miscellaneous are all are 2%, right? And so she breaks down those experiences, again, a self-report. And I'm just, uh, it still seems to be that most of these are positive, or at the very least, uh, the highest incidence in her categorization could be characterized as a positive experience. Now, Daniel Pinchbeck, in his book, Breaking Open the Head describes meeting negative, hostile entities that haunt him. So he doesn't take DMT. He takes a DMT variant called DPT. Okay. And he says he's encountered these beings that showed him contempt for being a mere human. Hmm. Other people have, as we saw earlier, sometimes encounter being in the say, okay, you saw this, now get out of here. Now leave, right? He yeah. was subjected to this terrifying world, again, of insects, lizards, winged creatures, and this kind of weird, psychedelic, demonic phenomenon. He, he concludes or believes that because he took the drug without shamanic guidance, that it actually caused him harm. Like he needed to have that guidance there as well. He had weird synchronicities after this, really weird dreams. He claims there's a poltergeist in his apartment. These poltergeist events include uh, foreign bugs appearing, unusual physical sensations, mirrors falling off the wall. He had an exorcism to rid himself of this. And finally, it's only through Buddhist meditation that he's able to purge himself of this demon. And then his life kind of goes back to normal. That reminds me of um, the book I'm about to talk about later. Uh, Eric Davis wrote this book, High Weirdness. And it's about three people who were highly influential in the 1970s. And one of them is Terrence McKenna. And... Um, they all had experiences that centered around using psychedelics. Actually, no, only two of them were actually using psychedelics, but 
they had weird experiences that were sort of hallucinogenic in nature that then followed up with things that happened in the external world that were often observable by other people that like didn't fit into any kind of easy categorization. So um, like they experienced synchronicities and uh, telepathy kinds of events and uh, pre-clairvoyance, precognition. That's pretty interesting. So this is a, a, the, a repeating theme is that some bad trips are so bad they follow you around for quite a while, apparently. Well, yeah, absolutely. But they could just be psychologically traumatic because you're taking a psychoactive substance that can cause you to have a bad experience, a bad trip, right? Yeah. And so finally, I want to talk about James Kent. He writes this article, The Case Against DMT. Um, he tries to explain this, the phenomenology of this, in terms of brain chemistry and how that affects the psychology of the human mind, right? And it's pretty complicated, but he's basically saying, look, DMT has a very real impact on serotonin receptor sites, and that's going to cause visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, and these other phenomenon that occur with people, right? And so he gives a very clear scientific explanation of how this would occur. And again, he's explaining that these are not real experiences in the sense that people are not ha having meetings with extra dimensional beings. They're just tripping balls, right? Hmm. Um, so I'll kind of in my part for there and now turn it over to you unless you have something to add to that what more is there to say than well it's in a substance that impairs your ability to perceive the world and that's a that's the reason the main reason for thinking that it doesn't actually put you in contact with uh beings or send you to another dimension right people who are high like we generally say like oh they're impaired right and because they don't know what's going on around them. That's kind of the basis for saying, well, they don't know anything, right? They're not very perceptive right now. That's not a perceptive state to be in. And I guess I wonder what more a neuropsychologist could add to that story. Um, I'm really interested also in the, you know, I, I think there might be something specific to say about the geometric nature of some of these hallucinations. That the, the substance might be activating our like edge detecting visual systems like we're supposed to have these visual subsystems that can detect edges and i've wondered if that's what's going on when people see geometric shapes is um there a certain part a certain level or layer of the visual system is getting hyperactivated uh but i'd love to just like hear more details about that kind of thing well i'm also as i reflect on our last episode here where we talked about florida man and that florida man who was really having an hallucinogenic trip on the flaca substance and how he ate that other man's face, right? And how we keep going back to the idea of these geometric faces. I just, I, I somewhat wonder if there's a connection there. Like he was so disturbed and or um, he found the geometric or unusual face to be so appealing to the sense that it, it, it seemed to be delicious to him that he felt the need to consume the other man's face uh and again that's speculative surely but i think that what we have somewhat of a tie-in here is we're talking about these substances and, and faces and 
the allure to them and, and through these hallucinatory experiences. Oh yeah, faces. Well, we're wired to detect faces, right? That's a thing that's supposed to be built into us evolutionarily. So that's why you can see like three dots or four dots, right? Three, three dots in a line and you're like, boom, face, right? Or like you look into the darkness or you squint into the darkness in your closet at night when you're in your bedroom. Like if you squint long enough, you start to see faces, right? Because your brain is just wired to do that. It's called pareidolia. It's just because if you don't, if there's a face there and you don't see it, you could be in a lot of trouble. So your brain is set up to make sure it catches those faces. And yeah, and I, you know, and again, that might be interesting here too, is we t you, your point you made earlier is maybe this is kind of, uh, hyperactivating some kind of lizard, lizard brain or some kind of cr primal instinct for preservation, right? So seeing insects, seeing lizards, seeing faces, right? These yeah. could all be a heightening of this primal sense that's really protective in nature. Yeah. Like it's tapping into like, um, yeah, old, old source code that's kind of buried at the bottom of our cognitive architecture that we don't always tap into. Absolutely. All right, Dane, I want to turn it over to you. All right. So as Chris already mentioned, uh, Terrence McKenna is the person that we have traced the origin of all this excitement about DMT back to. So it's pretty clear that DMT is really weird and the experiences it causes are quite diverse. But um, one of the thoughts is, like, where, where does the intellectual belief that there's something more to it than just a weird experience come from? So to the best of my knowledge, it can be traced back to Terrence McKenna and Dennis McKenna. Uh, Terrence McKenna is an ethnobotanist, spoken word artist, and countercultural wise guy who, along with his brother, popularized the use of psilocybin, mushrooms, and DMT containing hallucinogens like ayahuasca. Terence and Dennis co-authored The Invisible Landscape, Mind, Hallucinogens, and the I Ching in 1975. They also co-authored the Psilocybin Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide, which was originally published in 1976. I read that this is the, um, the text that basically made it possible for people to grow psilocybin mushrooms um, in their own home. So prior to that, it wasn't something that people knew they could do. And they figured out how you could, from a little kit, um, basically just do it on your own. Terrence then went on to write his own books. He wrote a book, uh, The Archaic Revival, Speculations on Psychedelic Mushrooms, The Amazon, Virtual Reality, UFOs, Evolution, Shamanism, The Rebirth of the Goddess, and The End of History. It's quite a title. And he published an autobiography of his early life, True Hallucinations, in 1993. Most of what I talk about today comes from True Hallucinations. Terrence McKenna, edit point, Food of the Gods, The Search for the Original Tree of Knowledge, A Radical History of Plants, Drugs, and Human Evolution, in 1999. He died near 2000 of um, brain cancer. So, Terrence McKenna has been described as a Timothy Leary of the 1990s. In addition to psychedelics, Terrence worked on a wide variety of subjects, including shamanism, metaphysics, alchemy, language. He was interested in culture, self-empowerment, environmentalism, artificial intelligence, evolution, 
extraterrestrials, science, the web, virtual reality, aesthetic theory, and the media. He was born in 1946 in Peona, Colorado, and he grew up with an interest in collecting fossils, studying wildlife, and reading science fiction. This is an, these were all interests he shared with his younger brother, Dennis, with whom he was quite close. He went to University of Berkeley in 1965. This was the 60s, and McKenna enrolled in uh, Berkeley's Tussman Experimental College. At Tussman, Terrence developed a reputation for being a raconteur and built a little following where students would come over to his place at nights and weekends and they'd smoke marijuana and they'd listen to Terrence do freestyle rapping about politics, culture, and religion. He was a radical, but not a very political radical, although he was involved in the free speech movement in the 1968 student-led strikes at San Francisco State University. Uh, he was also into the works of Ayn Rand and wasn't really into Mao. He didn't identify as a political leftist or even political at all. He identified as a freak. Uh, by way of explanation, the beat artist Frank Zappa, in his 1966 album Freak Out, describes freaking out as a process whereby an individual casts off outmoded and restricting standards of thinking, dress, and social etiquette in order to express creatively his relationship to his immediate environment and the social structure as a whole. Eric Davis, a scholar of the psychedelic counterculture, also describes freaks more succinctly as profane hippies. And he says that Terence McKenna took his task as the radical subversion of reality itself. Right out of college in 1967, Terence begins studying Tibetan folk religion. He travels to East Asia and he sought out the shamans of the Tibetan Bon tradition trying to learn more about shamanic use of visionary plants. During his time there, he also studied the Tibetan language and he got caught up in hashish smuggling. So he actually would um, have to stay outside the United States for many years because he was shipping hashish into the U.S. inside Tibetan statues. And uh, the customs and border enforcement people broke up in one of the statues and found the hashish. And so he was a wanted man for quite a while in the 70s. Uh, in 1971, his mother died from, of cancer, and so the brothers McKenna decided they wanted to get together just to spend some time together. His younger brother was in college at Colorado State, but he you know, just decided he was going to take a year off of school. And because Terrence couldn't come back to the U.S. because he was under investigation for hash, hash smuggling, they decided that they were going to meet up in Columbia and they were going to try to hunt down a mysterious substance called the okuhi, which was some sort of brew that was believed, in fact, it does, in fact, contain DMT. It contains a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So a quick note about neuropsychology. We have all these neurotransmitters in our brain, serotonin, dopamine, glutamine, and they all modulate broad neural systems like serotonin is you know really closely associated with happiness and you know there's this idea that if you have low serotonin that's what causes depression or frequently causes depression dopamine is a broad signaling molecule related to uh, satisfaction and reward so um, you know you can modify the rates of reuptake of these transmitters and in doing so you alter basically their effect on the rest of your neural systems. 
So we also have this enzyme called monoamine oxidase that deactivates the neurotransmitters. So when you have a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, what that does is it prevents a neurotransmitter system or multiple systems from being reabsorbed, which basically increases their efficacy. It makes them more potent. And so the thing about this drug, um, which was called Ukuhi, is that it combined DMT with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, which took the DMT high from 15 minutes to six hours. So that's quite a boost in how long the high lasts. So Terrence McKenna wanted to get this Okuhi and try it. And he was like, you know, he said to his younger brother, let's go do that. So that's what they were going to go do down in this vine. And they start to have the idea, let's just give up on finding this Okuhi. We're actually just going to brew our own ayahuasca. We're going to do it ourselves. So they're, they're doing these kinds of things now. And um, Terrence and Dennis started holding really wild conversations. Terrence was already somebody who was into, you know, into rapping and talking extensively. But uh, he, started to, he started to have more pressured speech. And so did Dennis. They started to feel like there was somebody else involved in the group's uh, activities, that there was another voice or another um, entity that was with them. They started to talk a lot about the reality of the dimension we were exploring, or rather our growing insistence that somehow it was a dimension with elements more than merely psychological, and that this became a sort of stays in. So I'm going to read just a quote from the book True Hallucinations by Terence McKenna. It was the sixth day of our residence at La Correria. We had taken the mushroom three times. We were healthy, relaxed, and delighted with ourselves for having come so far in such good shape. There were insects and plants to collect, and the lake beneath the choro to swim in. My new relationship with Ev seemed promising and was well launched by then. We were being lulled by the warm tropical sun and the depthless blue sky. Such unconsciousness seems almost the precondition for change. Events were stirring on some deep and unseen level. So then one rainy day, uh, they eat a bunch of mushrooms, and then Dennis, Terrence, and Ev, Ev is now Terrence's girlfriend, they're laying in their hammocks around their hut, and Dennis hears a loud buzzing sound in his head. He complains about the noise, and Terrence asks him, well, can you reproduce the noise? And Dennis refuses to do so. And then Terrence writes, <clears throat> the drizzle lifted somewhat, and we could faintly hear the sound of a transistor radio being carried by someone who had chosen the let up in the storm to make his or her way up the hill on a small path that passed a few feet from our hut. Our conversation stopped while we listened to the small radio sound as it drew near and began to fade. What happened next was nothing less than a turn of events that would propel us into another world. For with the fading of the radio, Dennis gave forth for a few seconds a very machine-like loud dry buzz during which his body became stiff. After a moment's silence, he broke into a frightened series of excited questions asking what happened and most memorably, I don't want to become a giant insect. Subsequent to this, Dennis began receiving what he thought were messages from an unnamed teacher. He got into his head that the incident with the buzzing sound had been his own body becoming a kind of antenna for receiving messages from some kind of enlightened being. He claimed that if he understood what was happening correctly, 
they might find a way to warp space and establish direct contact with whatever was communicating with them. He also thought that the buzzing sound might have been caused by the electron spin resonance of the mushrooms inserting themselves into his DNA. And finally, Dennis developed a plan to brew ayahuasca on their own as part of a ritual that he was convinced would bring the philosopher's stone into existence and allow them to cross over into another dimension. Terence wrote in his journal, Why I and my companions have been selected to understand and trigger the gestalt wave of understanding that will be the unleashing of the hyperspatial zitgeist is becoming more clear to me each moment, though I know I won't understand our mission fully until the work is complete. We will be instructed in the use of the stone by some infinitely wise, infinitely adept fellow member of the hyperspatial community. Of that, I feel sure. It will be the taking of the keys to Galactarian citizenship. I speculate that we will be the first human beings to be instructed in its use. Our mission will be to selectively disseminate it to the rest of humanity, but slowly and in such a way as to ease the cultural shock. It is also somehow appropriate that at least some segment of the species have an intimation of the implications and possibilities of this, the last cultural artifact. All Dennis right, Dane, I'm gonna, I, I want to I stop you right yeah. there. Because um, there's a lot to digest here. Yeah. And so um, just kind of some of the main points here is so Terrence McKenna, first of all, he really seems uh, when he goes on this trip, uh, as he's going into this, he's this modern renaissance, man, very artistic. Uh, we'd probably say a, a genius in many ways, given everything that he had done in his terms of his accomplishment illicit behavior aside or maybe even including that illicit behavior i mean this seems like a very complicated and lucrative scheme that he has to transport hashish aside from that he's this kind of ladies man he seduces this woman um what are your thoughts on his character as he's going down into this environment uh i got the impression that he's he's very immature so he's in his okay. mid-twenties at this point. One of the things that struck me was that when he strikes up the, the relationship with Ev, he says, um, so they don't even bother to tell Solo, her boyfriend. He actually initially showed up to meet the group at the Colombian airport, and they still hadn't told him that he wasn't together with Ev anymore. And um, Terrence actually says, I just hoped he would figure it out when he saw her and me together. You know, they're counting on this guy to be one of the ways that they're going to be able to get access to the shamans, right? And then they didn't reflect on, like, maybe we should tell him that his girlfriend's not his girlfriend anymore. <laughs> but, like, I'm seeing his girlfriend. <laughs> so, um, and he even, he wrote, like, I, I couldn't handle the confrontation. So this is a guy who, he seems immature to me. Like, he's clearly a genius, but he's also emotionally very immature at this stage in his life. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Thank you for that clarification as we kind of delve into who he was as a person then. Uh, and then also this shaman murdering uh, an, uh, another villager by putting hallucinogenic drugs on a ladder. I just found that to be bizarre and, and also super interesting. Um, I don't know if you have thoughts on that or, or, or not. I, I kind of thought about... Um, maybe voodoo or other occult practices where 
various substances are used and perhaps historically the people with this hidden knowledge to these substances had been using that in, in a similar fashion uh, to poison or control those around them. Thoughts on that? Well, the story takes an even weirder turn, Chris, because um, the, the villagers were actually not so much spooked out by the poisoning itself as they were by the fact that the man who was believed to be the poisoner subsequently lost his family in a mysterious canoe accident that almost nobody could explain. In fact, nobody, literally, no one could explain in terms of, you know, poisoning. They had a freak canoe accident shortly thereafter, and the villagers widely believed that this was a magical kind of retaliation against the shaman. That is very interesting. And last, my last question before I let you continue, and I want you to continue because this is really gripping stuff. Um, you talk about this hyperspatial zeitgeist. So is the suggestion or the implication here is that there is this hyperspatial spatial culture of intelligent beings that have this, this zeitgeist, this collective cultural idea, and that humanity was being invited into this, or uh, rather walking into this through these hallucinatory experiences. Yeah, definitely. So at first, they're talking about the feeling of some invisible other or some sort of teacher, a guide. But as they get further and further into the jungle, and further into these different substances they're experimenting with, it starts to become more about, yeah, some sort of alien species or alien super race. They might not be physical, although it, there is a point where they talk about how they think that maybe there is a satellite in geosynchronous orbit over the Amazon that they're going to be beamed up to. So uh, they kind of go back and forth about what exactly, are they physical aliens or are they like in another dimension? Um, but that's, these are definitely the kinds of ideas that are circulating in their minds at this time. All right. This is some wild stuff. So please continue. I, I'm just fascinated to hear more about this. All right, Chris. So here's sort of the peak of the story. Um, so Dennis, remember Dennis is Terrence's younger brother. He's only 18 at this time, but he was also thought by Terrence to be sort of the genius of the two brothers. And Dennis will go on to have a very successful career as a chemist and a scientist. He actually moves away from a lot of this stuff, although he's uh, he's still on uh, Joe Rogan. I saw him on Joe Rogan the other day. So Terrence is dead. He died in 2000. But Dennis, the younger brother, is still alive. And you can see him on Joe Rogan if you're interested in that. So Dennis's plan for summoning the Philosopher's Stone turned out to involve them brewing ayahuasca. Then they were going to take mushrooms. Then they were going to take ayahuasca on top of the mushrooms. And then Dennis was going to try to reproduce that infernal buzzing sound that first frightened him so much when he made it involuntarily earlier. He's going to make that sound until the stone emerged. If it worked, he envisioned that they were going to transform a single mushroom cap into a hyperdimensional artifact. And that artifact was going to allow them to travel into another dimension. So here's a direct quote from Terence's book, True Hallucinations. We agreed that during the actual making of the sound, we would extinguish the candle so that our minds would not be burdened by the sight of any tryptamine-induced facial distortions that the odd yelling might cause. Years before, during peak episodes of DMT among our old Berkeley gang, we had witnessed spasms of facial musculature, 
that were completely hair-raising, invoking as they did the entities of tantric Buddhism, the bulging eyes, the impossibly long lolling tongue, that sort of thing. Dennis sat in his hammock. Ev and I put out the candle, and Dennis sounded his first howl of hypercarbolation. It was mechanical and loud, like a bull roarer, and it ended with a convulsive spasm that traveled through his body and landed him out of his hammock and onto the floor. We lit the candle again, only long enough to determine that everyone wanted to continue, and we agreed that Dennis's next attempt should be made from a sitting position on the floor of the hut. That was done. Again, a long, worrying yodel ensued, strange and unexpectedly mechanical each time it was sounded. I suggested a break before the third attempt, but Dennis was quite agitated and eager to bring it through, as he put it. We settled in for a third yell, and when it came, it was like the others, but lasted much longer and became much louder, like an electric siren wailing over the still jungle night. It went on and on, and when it finally died away, that too was like the dying away of a siren. And then in the absolute darkness of our Amazon hut, there was silence. The silence of the transition from one world to another. That pivotal, yawning hesitation between one world and the next of Norse mythology. In that gap came the sound of the cock crowing at the mission. Three times his call came, clear but from afar, seeming to confirm us as actors on a stage, part of a dramatic contrivance. Dennis had said that if the experiment were successful, the mushroom would be obliterated. The low temperature phenomenon would explode the cellular material, and what would be left would be a standing wave, a violet ring of light the size of a mushroom cap. That would be the holding mode of the lens, or the philosopher's stone, or whatever it was. Then someone would take command of it. Whose DNA it was, they would be it. It would be as if one had given birth to one's own soul, one's own DNA exteriorized as a kind of living fluid made of language. It would be a mind that could be seen and held in one's hand, indestructible. It would be a miniature universe, a monad, a part of space and time that magically has all of space and time condensed in it, including one's own mind, a map of the cosmos so real that it somehow is the cosmos. That was the rabbit he hoped to pull out of his hat that morning. Dennis leaned toward the still, whole mushroom standing on the raised experiment area. Look! As I followed his gaze, he raised his arm, and across the fully expanded cap of the mushroom fell the shadow of his poncho. Clearly, but only for a moment, as the shadow bisected the glowing mushroom cap, I saw not a mature mushroom, but a planet, the Earth, lustrous and alive, blue and tan and dazzling white. It is our world. Dennis's voice was full of unfathomable emotion. I could only nod. I did not understand, but I saw it clearly, although my vision was only a thing of the moment. We have succeeded, Dennis proclaimed. Terence McKenna would go on to develop and popularize a wide range of really unusual ideas. So not only would he and Dennis, together they would write two different books about this one incident, but they would also, well, Terence would go on, to promote the idea that human history moves in waves, with major events happening during certain resonance cycles, when energy fields harmonize. According to McKenna, the resonance waves of human history would generate a crescendo on the year 2012, 
and he claimed that the Mayan calendar confirmed this theory. And so the actual popular idea that 2012 was going to mark a transition for the human race or even a disaster, that was started by Terence McKenna. He also later in life developed the idea that uh, it might have been mushrooms that triggered early man's transition to consciousness and the development of human intelligence. This is known as, as the stoned ape theory. And then still later in life, he claimed that mushrooms themselves were from another planet, that they are in fact an alien intelligence, and that this is how the aliens want to commune with us and bring us into contact with intergalactic civilization. It's by eating mushrooms and ascending to a higher plane um, that we come in contact with, with aliens. So I think you can see the, the fantastic nature of this experience and the impact it had on Terence McKenna, who then became a very influential psychedelic guru, especially sort of peaking in the 90s, and somebody who was always talking about DMT, it was one of his favorite substances, um, that this might have played a, a major influencing role in people like Joe Rogan today who are talking about, well, I'm seeing the machine elves, I'm having contact with beings from another dimension. And so it raises a question of to what extent are these experiences um, socially constructed by a, a larger, you know, um, historical, you know, tradition of what these experiences are supposed to be like. Chris, you look like you have something to say. Terrence. So, uh, Dennis, I just wanted to clarify this. So, according to Dennis, he sees the mushroom turn into the planet Earth yeah. first. Yeah, well, that's Terrence and who's then, right. And then... Yeah. Oh, but, Den but Dennis, so... Who's who's showing the planet? Is it Dennis or is it Terrence? Uh, Darren, Dennis is the one who points to the mushroom and says, "See, it worked," and then Terrence is the one who's writing this narrative. Okay, but there's a seeing the mushroom as the world happened before, or after the statement that is here. This is the world. Yeah, he he implies that it happens before, right? He That's says, what I thought. Because his brother says, look, and then he says, I saw it as the earth. And then it is our world. Dennis's voice was full of unfathomable emotion. Yeah, there we go. And I think that's interesting, too, because you would expect if someone's uh, susceptible to persuasion and they're under hallucination, you would hear the words first and then have the hallucination, not have the words after and then have that confirm the hallucination confirmed right so i thought that was interesting if we can believe this account for sure interesting stuff so what is your take on this whole phenomenon dane my take on the whole, whole phenomenon is that dennis dennis and terence mckenna are two extremely charismatic individuals who had a profound experience involving DMT and mushrooms, and then their enthusiasm for their experience and their own ideas may have played a very strong role in shaping how seriously we are taking DMT-related phenomena. That this, this thing that we're in the grip of right now in the 21st century where people are like, you can really go meet the machine elves and you can go right now, let's just smoke some DMT. Like that idea, I think, might be born out of the artifact, the the contingency of these particular very influential people. I can't prove that. It's not empirically falsifiable, right? We can't study. But that's my hunch, is that might be part of what's going on. 
You know, I think I, I may agree with you to a great extent. I think there's some sub subconscious influence going on here as people are taking these hallucinogens, but we also can't deny the possibility that perhaps people are taking hallucinogens and being transported to some other perceptual realm. Yeah. Right. And I, I think the evidence of that, I mean, such that it is, is the, you know, repeatability of this experience uh, abstracted from ideological contamination, meaning that people aren't hearing about machine elves, they're not hearing about these things, and then they're taking the drug, having the experience, and then only finding out after the fact, oh, wow, um, other people have had these experiences. Now, again, that's if these accounts are to be believed because uh, we have a sourcing problem here as we gather this information. But as we saw earlier, too, we have some very serious scholars looking into this as they examine the DMT experiences of people, and they're finding these parallels. So I think that's pretty fascinating. Um, and again, on the spectral skull session, anything is possible. So it's hard to say, Dane. Absolutely. And um, I think this is something that might be Terrence McKenna who says this at one point, that like supposedly the, the gold standard of scientific you know, experimentation is repeatability. And he's like, well, you, we can repeat this, right? Like you can smoke DMT and you'll go to another place. And isn't that a strong reason for thinking that you really are going to another place? Right? If everybody has the same experience, doesn't that seem to suggest something? Except, I mean, except we looked at that, that one study you saw about from the Arrowhead Vault where she says, well, actually there isn't a lot, like there's a lot of diversity in experiences, right? Mm -hmm. So, it still yeah. seems something's. It's still up in the air for me. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. I mean, we. It, but in in our role here on the show, we're not to take. We're not trying to take a firm position. And I would agree with you. It's up in the air for me. I don't know that in all cases when people are taking DMT, they're having spiritual experiences or strictly hallucinations or if it's mixed uh, it could be any one of those it could be they're hallucinating all the time it could be that they're always having spiritual experiences or sometimes they're having these spiritual experiences and sometimes they're not or maybe even in the moment having a mixture between a true spiritual experience and a mind generated hallucination it's just something that we can't conclusively prove or comment on however the possibility still exists that there are machinos. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there could be. I mean, it'd be nice to know. It'd be nice to know what they want. I mean, I guess the only way we're going to find out is to take DMT, which I don't plan on doing anytime soon. I don't know about yourself there, Dane. Yeah, unfortunately, but... I think that the, I'm just really concerned about these insect creatures. I don't think I want to meet up with them just right now. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I... I... You know, I'm not wild about spiders or praying mantises or any number of other giant insects that might visit me on a DMT trip. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess we're wrapping it up now. Uh, Chris, do you have any last thoughts about the uh, DMT phenomenon and the machine elves? 
Well, Dane, on our last episode, I asked you the same question. You put it back on me, so I'm putting that back on you. What are your final thoughts on DMT and machine elves? I definitely think it's something that needs to be taken seriously. So even if people are just having hallucinations, it's very strange that there would be repeated themes of transportation and encountering entities. And that's got to have some significance. You know, whether there is another realm you go to or not, whether there are other entities or not, um, you know, it could be that there's something profound about the way we're wired, that we're wired to have like a back door into our uh, cognitive system that can cause us to have the experience of going somewhere. Like, um, boy, I'll use a science fiction reference. There's an episode of Star Trek where um, it turned out that if you, if Data received the right signal, he would like put out a hologram of Dr. Soong, his creator, right? Like it's possible that our creators engineered us so that there would be a certain substance and when we would ingest it, we would have an experience of them, right? That might be their way of communicating with us, letting us know that they existed. So that's a real possibility. That's a very weird possibility that would allow for extra, extraterrestrial communication, but it wouldn't involve anything supernatural, right? It would be completely within the possibility of a naturalist, materialist metaphysics. Hmm, that's pretty interesting. Uh, you know, as uh, I was listening to you speak and also pondering your question, it might also just speak to a collective unconscious, right? The idea that uh, there's this unconscious mind, this this spiritual force running in the background of all of our existence, and perhaps when we take these substances, uh, it quiets that ego, it quiets that conscious mind, and we're able to more suitably vibe with that collective unconsciousness and we see these kind of fractal interesting beings because that's perhaps at the heart of our aesthetic understanding our aesthetic sense of the universe but it, we cannot say because as we say on the spectral skull session all things are possible and with that we bid our listeners a good night. Stay sane, everybody.